The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. So welcome to the Mystic and the Skeptic. In this week's show, we are featuring Brian Dunnan from the website Skeptoid, Critical Analysis of Pop Phenomena. Brian is a science writer and the host and producer of his own podcast. He applies critical thinking to urban legends and popular pseudoscientific subjects promoted by the mass media. He's the author of five books based on the podcast. His background is in computer science, and he's a member of the National Association of Science. The topic we are discussing is the vast number of anti-Jewish conspiracies online, from the corruption of all the financial systems to being blamed from the dubious child ritual abuse cases, Jews, Judaism, and the State of Israel are all the source of the most of most conspiracies out there. So, Brian, you have this excellent podcast, and um, two of your podcasts deal with the Rothschild conspiracy and the Zionist conspiracy. But, but first, tell us about yourself and what made you pursue this type of research, and what made you wanted to share this with the public. Great. Well, thank you for having me on very much. I'd uh, I'd love to share what I what I do with uh, with Skeptoid. The podcast has been around for uh, almost ten years now, uh, just over five hundred episodes, and um, one one every week, every Tuesday morning at seven a.m. at skeptoid.com. And each episode is short. They're only about 12 minutes long uh, because I address only a single subject with each episode. So it's really easy to find specific topics if you're searching for something. And I got into this by just having some, some pet peeves, things that I saw in pop- popular culture that were kind of silly beliefs that were widely held. And I just kind of started out as kind of ranting against some of these some of these pet peeves that I had. And, but as my career developed as a science writer, the show became uh, much more responsible in doing good work and addressing urban legends. I have four basic show, show subjects, and that's urban legends, conspiracy theories, uh, consumer frauds, and worthless alternative medicine schemes. And they, these things, they all share a number of a number of aspects. Uh, there are beliefs that a lot of people hold that aren't true, but that there's more interesting real science behind them if you dig into them. And as I started doing episodes on conspiracy theories, and that can be anything from 9-11 conspiracies to the United States is secretly holding aliens in underground bases, um, all world leaders are secretly reptilian beings wearing electronic disguises. A lot of the conspiracy theories are really crazy and really far out there. But then a lot of them are more measured in dealing with socio-politico-economic issues. You mentioned the Rothschilds, and that continues to be, to this day, even though that episode's about, I think it's about three years old now, um, the episode on the Rothschild continues to this day to be the web page on the website that is most heavily visited. People are constantly searching for 
information on the Rothschild banking family, which is continues to be the most provocative and most inflammatory of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's not simply a case of, hey, these evil rich people control the whole world's money supply and they control wars and governments and everything that goes on. It's very closely tied to anti-Semitism. I think, I think the, the way that I first learned how deeply entwined anti-Semitism is with so many conspiracy theories was by having comments sections on the websites. Uh, every, every episode, since the episodes are only 12 minutes long, it's pretty easy to have a transcript of the episode on every web page. So I have a lot of Google traffic. Anytime someone's searching for the Rothschilds or whatever it is, they end up on my website. And I had a comments section. And my gosh, the comments that people would put, um, the, the anti-Semitism and just the hate-mongering was terrifying in many cases. Sorry, my phone just rang. I'll make it go into shut-up mode. <laughs> um, and so eventually I actually ended up taking the comments off of the website, um, and anti-Semitism was really the, the major driver behind that. So where does these ideas come from? Um, why are the Jewish people scapegoated all over the world and, and blamed for everybody's problems? You know, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. There, there's, there's certainly some common themes that, that I have found. Uh, and you know, anti-Semitism goes back not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. Um, there just seem to always be the the, the scapegoats in in every society. Uh, Jewish people have had laws against them in one form or another, and continue even in this day in certain countries. And um, you know, there, there there never was a case in history where there was a a powerful Jewish nation that was in charge. I, I'm speaking pre-World War II, pre-modern Israel. There was never a period in history where there were great conquering Jewish kings taking prisoners and, and uh, conducting wars and everything. The Jewish people seemed to always be on the run. They always seemed to be the marginalized society. Why that is, I really, really couldn't say, except except my own guess is that once they just kind of became known as, you know, those evil, horrible people in the woods, in the desert that, that secretly cause all of our problems, it just became a reputation that stuck. And uh, the, the tragedy of that is, is that today it's, it's filled with the very frightening hate, very frightening hatred. Uh, and, um, to a degree that I never would have guessed possible until I had this stupid comment section on my website, which I'm so glad is gone. Uh, it was, a yeah, really, really just shocking every day reading the comments. See, but a lot of times uh, it seems that passages from the Bible are used against the Jewish people, like stuff from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and even South Park was mentioning the passage in Genesis 34 about Dina and the Shehemites where suddenly, because her brothers killed the Shechemites, all Jews are people you can't trust, and they're going to uh, stab you in the back. Or they'll take stuff that Jesus said, and then say, well, all Jews are murderers, uh, liars, and children of the devil, because it's right there in the book of John. So um, you say that 
there was no Jews in power, but in the eyes of the public, they were in power with King David and Solomon, and they were in power in the time of Jesus. So all of that gets transferred to modern-day Jews and just keeps on rolling. So um, it's just interesting that their own scriptures are used against them. Yeah, and and, and you know, this, the whole thing with uh, you know the Jews were responsible for the crucifixion, betrayal, and crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, you know, I, I can understand how that might create a lot of the the sort of Mel Gibson style of uh, you know modern modern Catholic and Christianity anti-Semitism, but it doesn't come close to explaining the anti-Semitism in in so many other cultures. Okay, um, the next question is. Um... What is the role of the Internet in popularizing these anti-Jewish theories? Um, like I was sharing with you earlier, there's people who feel that the Internet is like almost like um, AI, that it has power on itself, that it just connects people and brings so much knowledge into people's minds. But I see the Internet as a very dangerous place where people can pick up these unfounded theories and run with them. What is your experience and where do you see the the dangers or the balance that people need to find within the internet. I think the I think the biggest the biggest issue with the internet's role in in subjects like this is that it is the ultimate place to confirm whatever it is you want to believe. Any preconceived notion or preferred conclusion that you bring to the table, you can go to the internet and find plenty of support for it. If you believe the opposite thing, you could go to the internet and find support for that too. So no matter who you are, you can find that you're part of a large community in the world, no matter how oddball or how off-base your, your belief, your pre preferred worldview, whatever it is. And, um, and so it's, it's really the ultimate uh, confirmation of anything and everything. It legitimizes everything. It confirms everything. Even though all of those things, so many of those things are, are contradictory, uh, you know, it, it, it empowers everyone to believe anything and that's something we really haven't had in the world before <laughs> so it's uh, it continues to be interesting to see where that leads us as a as a society and a, as a culture why is the general public so gullible is the mainstream media propagandizing the same type of paranoia about muslims in your eyes um you know i'm not sure if 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 gullible is the right word um, because gullible suggests um, a weakness. It suggests that, uh, you know, people's thought processes is broken. And I don't necessarily agree that that's the case, although I, I will agree that that's probably a prevailing view, that gullibility, you know, shows a weakness of thought. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, and, and if I could back up for a second and just kind of talk about the larger phenomenon of belief in conspiracy theories. I think that goes a long way toward explaining why I say this. Um, the, the, the prevailing theory on, on conspiratorial thinking is that it goes back to an evolved trait um, called agency detection. And this is an oversimplification, but this is basically the idea, is that from the earliest days of proto-humans, um, paranoia was a salate, uh, was a trait that natural selection would would support. If you thought that every rustling in the bushes might be a saber-toothed lion about to kill you, and you scrambled up a tree every time you heard anything, you're much more likely to survive 
than someone who is not necessarily that paranoid, who's going to say, oh, it's just the wind in the bushes, because one time in a hundred, it's actually going to be a saber-toothed cat, and that person's going to get eaten, and his genes are not going to continue in the gene pool. So we have this evolved trait of paranoia, and that continues. And so we are all, by nature, paranoid. We seek agency detection. Agency detection is you know, a, a scientific-sounding phrase for the same thing, we tend to expect that there's an intelligent power behind any mundane thing that happens. Uh, and this is, we can still see this today in, in pagan cultures, pagan religions, who uh, they, they place spiritual significance on the rocks, the trees, the flowers, the grass, the river. All of these things have spirits. That's agency detection at work. When there's a storm, they think the gods are angry, whatever it, whatever it might be. So when you look at modern Western culture, agency detection kind of flows directly into conspiracy, conspiracy theories. Uh, something happens in the news. We assume that it's the result of some shadow cabal of evil people behind the scenes who are in power. So why then aren't we, are we not all conspiracy theorists? Well, because we have intelligence and because we have life experience and all of our life experiences are different, and as you and I have gone through our lives, things have happened to us, and we've learned this, and we've learned that, and we've learned not to worry about this. We've learned that this particular thing is not necessarily a threat, or that this particular thing might actually be a threat. So we've tempered our native paranoia with our life experience. And since everyone's life experience is different, we have a whole range of native levels of paranoia or conspiratorial thinking. Culturally, Jews have been the bad guys in so many of these stories that get passed down. They're the evil world bankers. They're the evil shadow cabal that, that controls world governments. And so when somebody comes out and believes a Zionist conspiracy theory, that's not necessarily gullibility or a broken thought process. What it is is a correct thought process. It's their brain doing exactly what it should do and doing it correctly, but simply having been tempered with a different set of life experiences that make them come to a different conclusion than you and I might. I think that's the best way I could explain it. It's the same applied for Muslims, because I guess since people haven't been exposed to Muslim society or members of the Muslim community, they have this like native fear and gut reaction from what they've seen in the news or what's going on, that they just, they, they, anytime that someone attacks the Muslim community, they just automatically believe that? Or is there something else going on? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you, you hit it right on the head. Um, particularly people who've grown up since 9-11 or who've grown up since the Iran hostage crisis of the 1970s, uh, those were, for many Americans anyway, those are the first time we ever really even heard of Muslims. There weren't very many in the United States. Uh, and most most of us, you know, white Anglo-Americans live in fairly isolated communities. And those those people, quote-unquote, aren't really a part of our worldview until these things happen in the news and they become significant parts of, they, they become those bad guys out there. And that sort of fills in the blanks for our native paranoia. Oh, something bad's going on in the world? Well, who are those bad guys out there? Well, it's the Muslims. So 
yes, whether it's the Jewish people yesterday or the Muslims tomorrow, um, it's going to be quite natural for people to suspect them of evil conspiracy theories. And uh, I think it's going to continue. I don't think it's uh, likely to go away anytime soon. So your podcasts about skepticism are very enlightening. Uh, have you ever researched religion and tried to debunk it um, like other skeptic publications do? And the reason I bring this up is because uh, atheist Bill Maher and Sam Harris have gotten a lot of flack for attacking Islam. But people say that they, even though they make fun of Judaism and Christianity, they're not as poignant or as you know hard with them as they are with Islam. And people, something that hasn't been brought up is that both of those um, gentlemen have a Jewish background. So it seems to be easy to say, well, maybe the reason they're not attacking the state of Israel or Judaism as much is because they have a Jewish bias against Muslims. Um, are you even interested in, in, in getting into the atheist um, perspective of trying to debunk all religions and try to show how maybe the Jews are bringing it upon themselves through their old beliefs or anything like that? The short answer is no. My show is about science versus pseudoscience. It's never been about attacking anyone for their beliefs or their culture or their background. I have no interest in that subject at all. So those guys you mentioned, I mean, yeah, they're, they're atheist activists. Um, that's not what my show is about in any way. The, however, certain religions bring certain religious histories, certain certain claimed historical viewpoints, and some of those are not true. And in those cases, we do have things where we do have cases where it becomes a science versus pseudoscience, or history versus pseudo history, and then it comes under under um, my purview for what I'm doing on the show. Like I'm never going to say do an episode on oh. Catholics, they're, they're wrong, they believe that. that would not be my show at all. However, um, just to give an example, um, there is the, uh, the Rastafarian history of the Ark of the Covenant, um, how it, it is believed to exist in Ethiopia, and we have their whole history of how they believe that it came to get to Ethiopia, and we can look at the version of history that they present, and we can find, well, this certainly couldn't have happened this way. We know that this happened in history. And we can kind of demystify their particular version of history, and we're able to conclude that, yes, there is a Ark of the Covenant hidden in their particular temple in Ethiopia, but it's a replica, and we have a pretty good idea of exactly when it was built and by whom. That's a case of, you know, where you actually find the gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, and by that, I, I, I mean you actually get to solve a real mystery. That's, that's kind of what drives me and what, uh, what, what drives uh, my shows here on Skeptoid. Um, it would never be enough just to say, this belief is untrue and here's why. For me, what's interesting is when we can see this belief may be untrue, however, it's untrue because there's this more interesting truth that we can actually learn something when we uncover it. So, atheist activism, no, not an interest of mine, but finding, finding the real solutions to real mysteries, whether they be religious-related or not, that is, that is my show.
Do you yeah. have a podcast about the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia? Because, um, you know, I would love to, I don't know if I can arrange it, but I would love to have a debate between you and Graham Hancock regarding that topic. Oh, well, uh, you know, I'm probably not the person to debate that. You know, I did a week, week of research on it a few years ago, but I might be able to refer you to someone who's more of an expert. I, I typically don't do debates. People like to debate uh, science versus pseudoscience, and I think that, that's, that that does science a disservice. For example, there's often debates between astronomers, physicists, and young Earth creationists young earth creationists who may believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, that's a science claim that we can debate on science terms. It's not a religious question, that's a science question. And there's no, obviously there's no meaningful scientific debate about that. It's a, it's a boldly silly proposition from the beginning. But when you advertise, hey, we're going to have a debate, a science debate on the age of the earth, that suggests to the general public that, hey, maybe it is an open question. If if scientists are debating it. So you're actually doing science a disservice when you debate a science question in public. That's kind of my general answer to any request that I get to do a debate. <laughs> I think it's counterproductive. Okay, well, I guess the same could be said between conspiracy theorists and normal people or people who would have to defend their community that is being thrown into a conspiracy theory. But, um, you know, the show is called A Mystic and a Skeptic because we try to give the benefit of the doubt to the people that we might not agree with. And Martin Luther King always said that if you have someone who hates you, you try to humanize them, you try to love them, you try to understand them, and then help them change. So um, my question regarding anti-Jewish conspiracies, do, do you know why people feel so threatened by Judaism? And is Judaism really a competing religion versus Christianity and Islam? Only in numbers, we know that they have um, billions of, of members. So why is this uh, ongoing attack against the Jewish religion from these two major religions in your eyes? I, you know, the, there's always going to be tribalism in, in the human race. And if it wasn't over the three major competing religions, it would be over something else. So... You know, I, I, I'm not surprised, and I don't think there really has to be a reason. It's it's just a it's a case of competing tribalism. Um, you know, there's there's essentially there's essentially three kinds of anti-Semitism. Um, in in modern days, um, the the anti-Semitism is kind of the stuff that 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 relates to these conspiracy theories we're talking about. The Jewish people control the world banks. They control the economy. They Somehow they have this international power behind the scenes, and all of the nation's governments have, for some reason, willingly given up their sovereignty in order to be slaves to this Jewish cabal. That's kind of what I call modern anti-Semitism. And then there's ancient anti-Semitism, which, which goes way back, which is when the Jews were poor, they were inferior, they... They were thought to carry disease. You know, it, it was, you know, they're sort of the subhumans that we can use as the scapegoats for anything and everything. And then there's um, what I would describe as the Christian anti-Semitism, which is probably what you're talking about now, which is um, based on religious disputes. Because none of those other two, ancient anti-Semitism and modern anti-Semitism, don't really have a religious component. 
It's more of just a cultural component. But the religious anti-Semitism, that kind of goes back to the, the, the deicide, the, the belief that, that Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And I think that's been a, a dominant force, but really only for the last for the last couple thousand years. Well, most Jews I know mind their own business and don't try to convert anyone. So why this constant paranoia? Um, Jews make up 0.2% of the world's population. I just want to know, how can they be under the earth as reptile people in every government, owning all the media outlets, starting all wars, as Mel Gibson would say? It, it doesn't even make sense in the amount of people they would take to be part of all those conspiracies. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously that's true to you and I, whose life experiences have taught us the way the world works in in, in some degree, so that we can fairly easily make that conclusion, and we can see that it's silly at its face. But for other people who may have grown up in different families, different families, for example, where uh, they were openly anti-Semitic, I have a grandparent who's now passed away, who I don't mind saying was openly anti-Semitic, and uh, fortunately I spent very little time with that grandparent, but if I hadn't, if I'd spent a lot of time with him, I may well be an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist today. I think it's, it's, like I said earlier, I don't think it's a matter of gullibility, I think it's just a matter of cultural exposure. So it's not going to go away, you know, it's, it's, like the, it's like the gene for blonde hair and blue eyes, even though it's recessive, it's not going to go away. <laughs> Well, going back to the topic of, of uh, the three different types of uh, anti-Semitism, I recently I came across a podcast that claimed not to be anti-Semitic, but only anti-Jewish. And they painted Judaism as a gutter religion, which is leading all leftists into the occult through the Kabbalah. Um, I find these distinctions dishonest since attacking a religion without attacking its members is ridiculous. But even if Jews abandon their faith tradition, like they did during the Inquisition times, they're still suspect by the general public. So converting to Christianity at times even intensifies the persecution, saying that they're not legitimate converts. And biblical scholars will make the same distinction between anti-Semitism, the medieval type of um, attack on people because of their ethnic background, but in, as compared to the anti-Jewish religion or anti-Judaism. But when you read the church fathers, um, they criticize Judaism and claim they love the Jews if they convert. But then um, when they say things like the children of the devil or members of the synagogue of Satan, it just seems like it's something. It's like a curse that is never going to go away no matter what the Jews do. So assimilation has only reduced the outward hatred, but there's still a distrust and there's still uh, kind of like this ongoing, uh, you know, they're suspect. But, you know, you know I, I think you brought, you brought up an, an important point when you're talking about a podcast that's, you said they were, they were not anti-Semitic, but they were anti-Jewish, right? The, the, this is something that, um, that I, I quickly got bit by user feedback. I, I'm not Jewish, by the way, and, and I'd, I'd, when I first started doing this show, I didn't have any, any more knowledge of Judaism or Israel than, than the average American. Uh, and I sort of had to be force-fed a lot and had to give myself a crash course. So my answer here is going to be incomplete and probably inaccurate, but I will at least lay out the issues that I learned have to be understood. And you've got people who are 
Hebrews, you've got people who are Jewish, you've got Israel, Israelis, uh, you've got Semites. And those are all different things. And you can be one but not another. You can be a combination of a couple and not a combination of others. For example, you can live in Israel and be a Christian, or you can be Jewish by heritage and be a Japanese Shinto. So you've got combination of culture, language, residence, whether you live in Israel or not. Uh, the, 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 the language that you speak, is it a Semitic language or not? Do you practice the Jewish religion or not? Do you have Jewish heritage, Israeli heritage, Hebrew heritage? It's really complicated, and there is no answer to the simple question, the seemingly simple question, what is a Jew? Because you can ask 20 Jewish people, what is a Jew? And you will get 20 different answers based on, probably based on who that particular person is. So it is important to understand that um, certainly there are Jewish people who don't follow the Jewish religion. And I'm probably saying that wrong. There are probably listeners who will dispute with the way I said that. But you understand the you understand the the complexity and the and the the confusion that can pop up. So I understand what that podcast is saying, where they say we are not anti-Semitic, but we object to the things the state of Israel does politically, economically, repressing people. That that's fairly common. That's fairly common in the United States um, for people to be anti-Israel. In my experience, I have found that that extends to genuine anti-Semitism, you know, genuine bigotry and racism um, more often than not, uh, unfortunately. But it is certainly a perfectly valid position that someone might hold. You know, I I think it's possible to object to the state of Israel and things they do without being bigoted against Hebrews, Semites, Israelis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, I think it's a perfectly valid position someone might hold. Well, definitely. I just want to clarify that these guys were saying that, you know, we, we, we don't hate the Jewish people as a people, but we hate everything Jewish that we can find. So the next thing you know, the, um, the government in certain areas of government has 90% Jews running it, and they, they made a big issue about that. Uh, Rupert Murdoch is a is an atheist Jew who runs um, Fox News. Um, yeah, they just went on and on and on. Like any Jew under a rock they could find, and then this this kind of like disdain of calling them Jewish. So it and it came from some fringe evangelical perspective, but to me it was like, don't say you're not anti-Semitic when you're doing anti-Semitic things. You you are talking like a Nazi, but you're trying to use, um, you know, it's not racial, it's religious persecution. So you're proud of being persecuting them from their, in, in because of their faith, but you would never persecute them because of their race. And Judaism is a ethno-religious civilization, and it's all mixed together, like like you were saying. So it's very difficult to separate. And once you start going in that direction. Uh, it just—it it was very disturbing. Like they, they just wouldn't stop, and and obsessed with it. Yeah, uh, it's 
it's pretty much a rule of the universe that whenever someone says, I'm not a racist, but that the next thing they say is going to be something racist. <laughs> or I'm not anti-Semitic, but they say something anti-Semitic. Yeah. Um, like I say, it turns out to be the case more often than not um, in, in my experience, which may not represent other people's experience. Well, so let's get back to conspiracy. So um, what is this thing about the reason there is no evidence is because it's a conspiracy. Uh, you know, ancient aliens does this all the time. Uh, you know, you proven that the Rothschild conspiracy is uh, bonk. You've proven that the sinus conspiracy is bonk. And what they're going to say in return, they're going to say, well, the reason there is no evidence, the reason that in your research you cannot find that they're taking over the world is because it's a hidden thing that is happening. And unless you have the secret knowledge, you wouldn't be aware of it. So they're putting a blinder over your eyes and they're still taking over. Yeah, we, we call that a special pleading in logic. A, a special pleading is, is an argument. It's an invalid, logically invalid argument that can be used to support just about any, any, any belief or position. And what it means by a special pleading is to understand this, you have to have special knowledge that most people don't have or aren't qualified to have or aren't smart enough to understand. Uh, and you can defend anything with a special pleading. In, in what I do for a living as a science writer, debunking urban legends and paranormal claims, I literally hear special pleadings ten times a day. So for a conspiracy theory, they might say, um, you know, the, the, the reason you don't believe in the, uh, the uh, Zionist conspiracy or whatever it is is because they've successfully pulled the wool over your eyes. You know, I have special insight, but you as one of the sheeple, you, you know, you fell for it. And that's something that's, that's not falsifiable or disprovable. And, and I, by the way, on the subject of being disprovable, I should go back to what, what you said a moment ago, how I proved that the Zionist conspiracy is not true. That's, that's not correct. I, I don't, do not claim to have disproven any conspiracy theory. What I will claim to do is point out how any of the alleged evidence that's been presented is invalid. So there's a lack of evidence for these conspiracy theories, and that's not the same thing as disproving them or proving that they can't or don't exist. So just a minor clarification there. Well, tell us a little bit. I know we have limited time, but tell us a little bit about how the Rothschild conspiracy uh, lacks evidence and how the Zionist conspiracy lacks evidence as well. Well, the, the main thing about the Rothschild family is, you know, way back when, when they were the in-power bankers, um, that was all largely true. Anything that you can say about the Rothschilds today, there certainly was a point in that history where it was essentially correct. They were the major lenders in some of these wars in Europe. And in some cases, they would make money on both sides. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a lot of untruths about them. There's a tremendous amount of untruths and, and false claims about who they were and what they did back then. But nevertheless, the basic idea is generally true. However, and here's where it falls apart, that was 10 generations ago. And over a large number of generations, you've now got hundreds and thousands of Rothschild family members worldwide, many of whom went into businesses and careers that have nothing whatsoever to do with financing and banking. 
and their power simply simply dissolved. And there's there's no Rothschild in a position of power now whose influence is any different than yours or mine by virtue of the fact that you and I probably both have interest-bearing checking or savings accounts at our banks. And so by extension, we have some minor share of ownership in every publicly held company in the world. You know, if I have a Bank of America savings account, that money is invested in this fund, this fund, and this fund, and those funds are invested in this company and this stock and this other fund and this company and this stock and this other fund. So you know, everything, everything spreads and everyone is an owner of every company at some level. That's the level that the Rothschilds who remain in the banking industry, that's the level of influence that they have. Some of them probably have many more shares of stock in certain companies than you and I do. That, obviously, that's the case. And uh, many of them are centimillionaires. Uh, I'm not aware of any that are billionaires, but there could well be some. In fact, there more than likely are some, but it's probably, you know, trust fund babies you know, living on their yacht somewhere and driving their Lamborghini around Dubai. Um, the, the, the picture of the Rothschild family has just changed dramatically over the centuries, and it's fairly trivial to look at the histories uh, and, and learn these things. That's the basic idea behind um, how you go about debunking the current Rothschild the current Rothschild claims as far as the Zionist conspiracy theory. I mean, that's, that's a lot less specific because you could point the Rothschild family and say, okay, here was, you know, Jacob Rothschild. Here was Amstel Rothschild. And here's what they did. And we can follow and see exactly what they did. But the Zionist conspiracy theory is very vague. It doesn't point out particular individuals, um, except to the degree that some people will pick some world leader who has some Jewish background or something and say, aha, it must be him. But there's, there's no Jewish Zionist conspiracy that can be traced through the ages, unless you do something like say, you know, well, the Rothschilds were Jewish, so they owned this bank, so, you know, therefore Obama gives his allegiance to Jewish people in a secret ceremony every night at midnight or something like that. It's, the, the, the claims are kind of goofy and, and, and hard to follow and, and hard to pin down. Um, and there's certainly never been anything remotely like solid, testable, provable evidence that there is any secret committee to which any world leader has given up his sovereignty and reports to. Well, tell us about the fraudulent um, background of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and why is it so popular among, uh, you mentioned um, the leader of Venezuela, a lot of leaders of Middle Eastern countries. Um, do they already have a bias uh, towards um, the Jewish people and then it kind of supports that claim and, and helps build up the case, kind of like the way that Hitler was able to do it and and why was it created to begin with? Yeah, so the the, the, the Protocols of Zion, um, and forgive me, it's been a while since I've done that episode, so my memory's probably got a few holes in it, but it was, um, let's see, um, let me find that, uh, here's my notes. So the, the Protocols of Zion was a basically a, a hoax document that claimed to be the Jews laying out their plan for, dominating the whole world. And 
the guy who made it was he was he Russian? I think he was. I think he was Russian back in the early days of the Soviet Union, um, around the time of the Russian Revolution. And again, I apologize. I'm not. I'm not recalling these facts uh, exactly. He lived in France, and he had access to another document that was in French. Yeah, because the, the actual document was written by was it Napoleon the Third? I think it was Napoleon the Third had actually written this document, and it was like his plan for. Um, you know, being being the French emperor, whatever whatever he was up to, and I think one of these Russian guys literally took that document and and just replaced the word French with um, with the Jews or the the world. He's instead of dominating the French, he's going to dominate the world and replacing Napoleon III with Jews. So instead of Napoleon III is going to control the world, it was Jews. Instead of Napoleon III controlling the French, it was Jews controlling the world. So it's literally kind of a search and replace type of type of document, uh, type of hoax. And so this 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 document, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, as it was retitled, was used by the Russians uh, during their Russian Revolution in the early days of the Soviet Union as part of their institutionalized anti-Semitism. It was used again by the Nazis as part of their institutionalized anti-Semitism, and even though its history as a hoax document is conclusively proven and, and not in any meaningful dispute, it is still available to purchase and people still lap it up, probably with the belief that anyone claiming that it's a hoax is making up false pseudo-history as part of the Zionist conspiracy. Uh, someone mentioned once that uh, any conspiracy has like a kernel of truth in it, and that's why it's so engaging. And then it's um, blown out of proportions from there. And I, I think you said that also during our show. But um, you know, it, right now the X Files are back, and they talk about a lot of the conspiracy theories and urban legends that you address on your podcast. And there's this thing about. Agent Mulder on the first show says, I want to believe. So so there's really this kind of desire to believe certain things. Do you think that that drives more? Like you mentioned that there's a evolutionary aspect of paranoia, but now we're dealing with sophisticated people, people who have education, and they still um, go out of their way to, to believe these conspiracies. So, you know, the 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 Nazis were were very intelligent people, so is, is this kind of like if it already um, if you already have that desire to believe things, you find the answers that you want from what's available. Yeah, it's it's having having secret superior knowledge is something that's very attractive and it's very tempting, and everyone wishes they knew the secrets that other people aren't privy to. Um, I, I, I've got a couple of friends who are full-blown conspiracy theorists, and they just seem to rejoice in the fact that they alone have access to the secret knowledge that that I don't understand because you know the the wool has been pulled over my eyes. So it's it's almost like a superpower. Everyone wishes we had superpowers. If I can offer you, hey, here's the secret things that are actually going on in the world. That's tempting. You want to hear more, and you want to. It's 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 just automatically natively attractive to us to want to have the secret knowledge. So, yeah, when Mulder says, "I want to believe," there's probably an element of that. 
Uh, I got into this this whole thing to begin with based on having been a little kid who read all these books about all these mysteries and paranormal things in the world, and I wanted to know the secret. It seemed that nobody around me cared about these things, but I was going to have the secret knowledge of what actually goes on in this weird haunted house or whatever it was. I wanted to have the secret knowledge, and people still want to have the secret knowledge. Like, like I say, I, I, I talk to them on a daily basis for being what I do here. And um, it's, uh, it's difficult to reason people out of that because they didn't get into their conspiracy theory based on reasoned examination of evidence. They got into their conspiracy theory based on a really attractive solution to this native desire they had for secret knowledge, and it satisfied their native sense of paranoia about secret cabals going on in the world. That's very different from a meaningful, rational examination of political science or economics, whatever it is, and thus they come to these radical conclusions. Uh, Have you done much research about uh, child ritual abuse uh, in the... 80s, it was very popular in the 90s uh, with Geraldo Rivera and all these um, cases. And then it died down. And then I just came across it again. And it's still kind of like nobody talks about it because it's happening and it's hidden. And then I do some research on it and it goes back to the Jews and the sacrifice of children to make matzah and all this stuff. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, that one I hadn't heard. <laughs> yeah, like. There was a guy who wrote a book saying that the Nazis were the ones who started it, but it was a Jewish doctor that worked for them, and they were sacrificing babies and pretending it was baby Jesus, and and then now they're doing it in daycares across America, and it's just unbelievable. But you know, the it, interestingly, the the whole thing that the whole satanic panic from the I think the nineteen seventies is where that had its peak, where there was beliefs that there were, you know, churches of Satan and people who went out at midnight and had satanic rituals and sacrificed babies. Uh, we, we now know that that's really never happened. There's never really been a serious church of Satan. Uh, there's never really been any cases of babies being skinned. It was, it was urban legends being, being passed around and spread. But when you mention, um, babies being turned into matzo or whatever. It, it reminded me right away of things that propaganda ministers have done during, uh, particularly during the World Wars. World War One. one of the most famous cases of this was a successful campaign by the British minister of, of propaganda. That wasn't his title, but that was essentially his job. Uh, something to do with military intelligence. But, uh, they started a rumor that uh, the Germans were taking British corpses from the war and rendering down their bodies in these big factories to create axle grease. And that was a successful campaign that generated race hatred for the Germans in, in Great Britain. And so it has been deliberately done as propaganda in some cases and probably will continue to be done in, in other cases. But most of this stuff with the the satanic ritual abuse and everything, it, it's purely fiction. Uh, it's been a part of legitimate fiction, novels, science fiction, novels, fantasy novels. It's been a part of that for a long time. But it's never really been part of 
of real world culture any more than dragons and elves have been part of real world culture. We had this whole thing in the um, with the McMartin Preschool. I think the late 1970s, early 1980s, the McMartin Preschool was, uh, we had seven people who worked at the preschool whose lives were destroyed by these allegations that they had been not only sexually abusing uh, many children at this preschool, but also had this underground room where they did satanic rituals and just a whole bunch of really bizarre claims. And uh, the trial actually lasted seven years. It was one of the longest and most expensive trials in American history. And we know now, we didn't know it then, but we know now that these phenomenon of repressed memories upon which so much of the prosecution's case was based have no evidence in the psychiatric record that there is such a thing at all, repressed memories. It's so popular in movies and in fiction to say, oh, he, it was such a horrible thing that happened that his mind blocked it out and he can't consciously remember it anymore. That's fiction. That's, that's not reality. It's something that nearly everyone believes, but it's because we've heard it so many times. Psychologically, there's no such thing. And so we're, we're, as our knowledge has improved, we're able to take a fresh look at some of these claims like satanic ritual abuse, and we're able to find out not only that they didn't happen, we know that from a forensic and an evidence uh, point of view, but from a sociological point of view, in a psychological point of view, we're better able to understand why they happened, why the belief existed. And to me, that's the real interesting part, is getting, getting to the why the belief existed part. It's more interesting than simply debunking the belief, which is typically trivial to do. So what do you think is different about American Muslims and American Jews as compared to people in the Middle East who believe conspiracies? They don't have access to... Um, opinions, dissenting opinions, uh, public uh, media, independent media, it's all government run. So is that what makes it different between knowing the real issues, understanding people as people, not judging them by their background or religious identity? Is that what is happening? I can only give uh, you know a, a personal anecdote, uh, an observation I've personally made, and that's that a lot of the people who have immigrated to the United States from those parts of the world specifically did so because of how screwed up they thought that country was. And they came here very much for the right reason. You know, I've got a, 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 one friend in particular I can think of who is, uh, um, he's, his family is from Iran. And you may have heard a lot of people who, who are from Iran who identify as Persians. The word Iran, Iran to them is, is like a swear word because they hate what that country has become. They think of how it was in the, the 1950s, 60s, before it became so radicalized. And uh, so they refer to themselves as Persians. I think uh, personal observation, personal anecdote, I think a lot of the people who have come here from that region of the world are much more likely to be peaceful than the people who remain in that part of the world and remain under that sphere of influence. You know, we've interviewed different religious groups who have been persecuted in other countries, and I asked them, do you feel that religious freedom is better here than over there? And they always say yes. And then when people complain about all the things that the U.S. does around the world, uh, as an immigrant, I'll tell them, well, compared to the stuff that our own leaders do back home, it's still better. Do you feel that 
the our role as skeptics is to keep challenging the norms, keep challenging uh, the leaders and the population of of our country to to help them uh, reach their their better self. Is that why it's important to share these ideas, or is it just an intellectual exercise, and we just want to get the pursuit of truth out through the media or through uh, the internet, like other people are pushing their theories. The definition that I give to skepticism is comes from a friend of mine, Tim Farley, who described it as the intersection between science education and consumer protection. What I do with, with my show, with Skeptoid, is helping people to understand the way the world, the natural world, really works, and they'll be able to make better decisions about their lives. When you have bad information and you misunderstand, you, you, you cling to wrong notions about food, about medicine, about nutrition, um, you tend to make bad decisions. Most of these decisions are generally fairly harmless. They don't hurt you any more than they do in the wallet. For example, all of the nutrition fads that this country is just awash in right now, they really just waste your money by making you buy miracle food products that are Certainly the same thought patterns can be expanded into much larger questions. If you understand the way the world really works, you're going to make better decisions than someone who thinks that the government is about to kill us all or put us into prison camps. That's the kind of person who blows up a federal building in Oklahoma. And that may be an extreme example, but it's very much the same thought process. That was an example of conspiratorial thinking that was not well controlled. And a lot of people died as a result. So, yes, I think that scientific skepticism, how I describe it, uh, is understanding, having a good general science education, being able to understand how and why things really work. I think it's important for anyone to make better decisions about living their life. That would be the best answer I could give. The last question is related to what you just shared. Um, so when people say that Americans are angry and Americans are tired of the, the institutions and the, the establishment, um, is it involved? Is is it part of this paranoia? Kind of like you know, being off the grid and putting a bunch of cans in your uh, kitchen to you know expect for the either the economy to collapse or a virus to take over, a zombie apocalypse. Like all these things that are that are that are so popular now, uh, you said that your most um, popular show was the one about um, Jewish conspiracies. Our most popular show is about ancient aliens, um, but I know that you know doomsday preppers and stuff like that are very popular as well. So, um, what's going on? Is it too much affluence and too much spare time in American society that they go on these routes? Or there's actually a genuine movement from the people that they want some change or something. But it always appears that it's, it's very superficial understanding of what's going on. And then they just jump into conclusions. Um, how do you build critical thinking and deeper research on subjects so people are not as, as quick to go, you know, rural or go, you know, build a, a bunker or something like that in your eyes? Well, I, I, you, you bring up a couple. Uh, I, I was kind of uh, laughing a bit at a few things you said since they were so right on the nose and, and, and uh, that I get exposed to all the time. Uh, 
when people say that there's this big movement, there's a big movement to have a bomb shelter under your house. There's a big movement to not let your kids get vaccinated anymore. There's a big movement to do this. No matter what the strange belief system is that I will hear about on a daily basis, the people who are into it believe that it's a huge movement. Uh, and from my outside perspective, uh, I can assure them that <laughs> it's a very small little fringe thing, and it's not nearly the huge movement that they might suspect it is because their neighbor's part of some huge movement, and he's never heard of you, and you've never heard of his. So I, I think the, the tendency to consider any of these things to be significant widespread movements is almost is 95% a belief coming from just within that little small community itself. From the outside, I think, uh, I think these huge movements are, um, what's, what's the, uh, what's the, what's, what's the word? Um, uh, oh, it's some, some great turn of phrase having to do with ants and anthills or something, but the, the, to answer your question though, the way I would, the way I tend to deal with that phenomenon, because a lot of my listeners people who come to me and email me and tell me their story, um, a lot of my listeners have come from these communities. They say, I used to be a huge believer in this, and I started listening to your show, and eventually I, it, it, it swayed me. And the way that I try to engage them, and the way I encourage people to get their friends to start listening to this show, is never to start with something that challenges people head-on and attacks their sacred cow head-on. For example, if someone is a believer in the Rothschild conspiracy theory, I would not give them my episode on the Rothschild conspiracy theory to start with. I'd give them an episode on something they tend to probably already agree with, something to do with you know Bigfoot or aliens or UFOs or something like that, um, because that introduces them to the whole skeptical process, the idea of how we go about investigating these claims and how and why we can learn what's actually true and engaging and fun and interesting and true. When something's fun and interesting and true, that's much better than something that's fun and interesting and false. Most people would agree with that. Nobody likes to believe anything that is false. Nobody willingly knows anything, believes anything that's false. They all believe their beliefs are true. So try to engage people by finding the middle ground. Find something that they're already likely to agree with and expand on that and expand outwardly from there into these other varietal topics. And uh, it's the, a great thing about um, having done 500 Skeptoid episodes now, 511 I think now, is there's a huge breadth of topics, something for everyone, literally something for everyone in every culture that people will enjoy. And you get them hooked on one or two, and then you can spread to the ones that get closer and closer to their particular sacred cow. And by the time you get to that, one of two things will happen. They'll actually reconsider their sacred cow, which is probably not what's going to happen most of the time, but sometimes it will. And the other thing that'll happen is they'll send me an email saying, I've agreed with every one of your episodes, but you got this one totally wrong. And since I get that email from somebody every week, <laughs> I know that I'm doing something right. Well, thank you so much for your work, and um, I again, I'm very uh, appreciative of you being available. Uh, I hope that we can have you on the show in the future. Um, Great, thanks for having me on. Skeptoid.com, folks, tune in. I'd like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.
The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person speaking. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of What's Radio or The Farm.